Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now, the podcast that hasn't committed any crimes since it was executed for double parking on bin day. <laughs> I'm Andrew Harrison, tough on news, tough on the causes of news. It's a very big week here. We're getting psyched up for the live show at Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday the 15th. There's a handful of tickets left if you want to come. Or, if you're not in London, it's free to stream for Patreon backers. Search Patreon Oh God, What Now podcast. We'll see the link in the show notes to sign up. And we've got another new podcast out this week as well, Mugshots with Michael Crick, in which the legendary Newsnight and Channel 4 reporter builds up portraits of the big figures who shape the world. Episode one is Paul Dacre, dark lord of the Daily Mail. And if I told you that certain of Dacre's fellow editors were sniffing around for an advanced listen at the weekend, that should tell you how good it is. Again, there's a link in the show notes. Anyway, today's show, the Conservatives roll the dice on 30p Lee Anderson, is putting Finchy from the office in a position of power just what the red wall wants? Or is it the final nail in the Conservative coffin? Plus, how to talk about when to talk about rejoining. After Michael Gove's Leave a Remainer Country House Love-In, or Secret Plot to Unravel Brexit, if you read the mail, are we finally on course for a sensible conversation about reapplying to join the EU? And hundreds of books and films enter the public domain every year, so now we're getting gory adaptations of Winnie the Pooh, which intellectual property would the panel rescue from copyright hell? And let's meet that panel. First up, it's commentator and man about town, Alex Andreo. Hello, Alex. Hi, Andrew. So um, the fallout from last week's horrific earthquake in Turkey and Syria, uh, the death toll has now reached 33,000. It's surpassed the worst estimates. President Erdogan has been visiting the worst hit areas. It's fair to say not everybody's happy to see him there. Can he use this earthquake as a route to hang on to power? I think he might. Mm. Um, my my instinct is that everything is heading in that direction. He's declared a state of emergency right up until the election, which ostensibly needs to be between mid-May and mid-June. The polls have been seriously turning against him, uh, but his main rival, Imamoglu, who is the mayor of uh, Istanbul, mm -hmm. is actually in prison. He was arrested by the Erdogan regime and banned from politics. That case is going to appeal. At the moment, the opposition have not put up a, a rival for mm. Erdogan. So it's a really weird situation. It's incredibly ironic that Erdogan swept into power because of the pre... 20 years ago, mm. plus, because of the previous government's cock up on that big 1999 earthquake. But all the signs are extremely worrying. He has clamped down on social media saying that he will punish those who say bad things about the country. He really has got a hold on the news, which friends in Turkey inform me show nothing of the devastation, but they just show sort of miracle rescue stories, you know, babies being rescued yeah. after three days, and nothing of people complaining, which you see a lot of here. And now we have hundreds of warrants ostensibly about, you know, bad developers and corrupt politicians that have allowed the development of buildings which weren't earthquake-proof, but that seems to me as an ideal cover to clean up house and, and eliminate basically political rivals in the region. It feels to me like we are watching a, a slow-motion remake of what happened with Assad, and, and I think the West needs to be a lot wiser about funneling uh, billions in aid to basically Erdogan's coffers. Also with us is comedian Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. Hello. So it's a terrible week in Britain. We are saying farewell to um, Nadine Dorries, who announced yes. in, in a scoop on her TV show, announced that she would not be standing again. Will you miss her? What do you think she'll be doing next? Well, I, I don't I don't think that we're really going to get much of an opportunity to miss her because I think that whatever she does next, we'll, we'll know. Like, I don't think that she's going to be extremely like, and and now I will retire to the woods and, uh, <laughs> and no one will ever hear from me again. Uh, as I can say, oh, maybe she will. Maybe she will go back to writing her apparently extraordinarily successful series of books, perhaps. Uh, that's what. But I think that she's got... Very much a, a taste for a taste for the limelight. It was kind of metaphorically throwing herself on Boris Johnson's funeral pile. Wasn't it? it was. I've never seen such. It was like like opera, but like rubbish opera. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
What's fascinating to me and remains fascinating to me about Nadine Dorries is that there's a very like archetypical quality to her. And I think that it's one that several MPs who really capture the public consciousness end up with, which is the one where like I've never I've never met her specifically, but I've met a bunch of Nadine Dorises yeah. in my life in the same way that I've never personally met Lee Anderson. But I feel like I've met loads of Lee Anderson. Oh, yes, uh, maybe this is the thing, like she's exiting that uh, role just as Lee Anderson is coming into it, you know. So it just makes me think of, you know, in the uh, in the Simpsons where he just goes like, Duff man can't die, only the actors who portray him. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it's very like uh, sort of like identifiably uh, identifiable personality traits. MP will never truly leave; <laughs> only change form. God, she's going to regenerate. Yeah. Um, back on the show, we're delighted to have senior associate editor of the New Statesman and host of their weekly podcast. It's Rachel Cunliffe. Hello, Hello Rachel. Welcome back. Now, this government spending spree on the government's uh, the debit cards. Labour has highlighted the story that there's been some profligacy. With public money, the stuff that they've uh, identified, 13 fine art photographs in the to take gallery bought for £3,393. A reception for Liz Truss when she was foreign secretary, £7,218. And my favourite, the Ministry of Justice paying £4,019 for 850 branded USB cables, <laughs> which is like, I can get them cheaper. Have you seen Wish? Are you aware of Wish? Um, is, is this story the slam dunk that Labour thinks it is? Oh, I was disappointed by this. I'm, I'm struggling so hard to to try and get excited about it because they were very, the, the, the sort of Labour communications team were really pushing this hard last week. Lobby reporters got sent these QR codes that took you to a secret website that had a countdown, it had a picture of the Conservative tree. Just the crystal maze. Dying. It felt a bit like the crystal maze or or like a, a really weird only connect puzzle or something like that. Um, and then we got it and it was, yeah, there's, there's some spending and there's some waste. But the thing is, the numbers involved are actually quite small in the scheme of government budgets and sort of the billions that are spent here and there. I mean, we're not talking about the same scale as, for example, COVID procurement, and that that really is a massive scandal. But the other reason that I'm a bit wary about this is we're pretty certain that Labour are going to get in in the next election and Keir Starmer is going to be Prime Minister. And there will be stories like this that come out under a Labour government because there always are, because this is just a thing that happens. And when that those stories do come out, I really worry that that Labour is creating trouble for itself by going so hard on this now with something that doesn't seem that big of a deal. Like fancy photographs, sure, home-brewing beer kits. That was the mad one. I mean, (laughs) you know, five quid for a USB cable. I wouldn't use a USB cable that costs five quid. I wouldn't trust it. But two and a half grand on homebrew kits filed under computer equipment and services. Mm. Who's brewing their own beer? And why is it a computer beer? <laughs> well, maybe the people who had the wine fridge, perhaps. Yes. You know, the, the, the party gate thing, and they had the special wine fridge and the wine suitcase and all yeah, of that. It's like, screw you, and I'm going to put it here. They're making prison yeah. wine in the no, toilet. Actually, <laughs> I, I think there is, if we want to get our, our budget under control, I think there would be a market for beer brewed on the Downing Street premises. <laughs> set, up, set up a little brewery, a little tap room. I think I know, I know quite a few young, Big young conservatives <laughs> yeah. who'd be exactly... <laughs> You'll be well up for that. Very imperial IPA. No, I'm not that excited about it. (laughs) Sorry. First up this week, what does the ascension of 30p Lee to Conservative Deputy Chairman really mean? The likes of us have been chortling away since the loutish Ashfield MP was elevated to Greg Hand's right-hand man, very right-hand man, in the reshuffle. Far right. (laughs) Far right-hand man, yeah. (laughs) Lee Anderson claimed that the death penalty had a 100% record in preventing re-offending, a policy he shares with noted criminologist Judge Death from 2000 AD. And he threatened to withdraw from interviews with the BBC if they didn't portray him favourably. But is the joke on us? Is 30p Lee what the Tory corps really wants? Rachel, Lee Anderson started off as a Labour councillor and, you know, people do cross the floor. How does somebody with such socially conservative views not start off with the Conservatives in the first place? Well, uh, I'm going to do the thing that you really shouldn't do on on, on radio, which is try and explain something visually. Uh, (laughs) She's got a chart out now. (laughs) We've all seen the grid, right, that goes from economically... Where did you get that eagle? (laughs) (laughs) The left-right sort of economic axes and then the sort of authoritarian, conservative, Mm -hmm. liberal, progressive axis going sort of top to bottom. And there is this uh, 
faction cohort in, in politics that the narrative goes have felt very left out and abandoned in the, the new Labour years and the, and the Cameron years, which are people who quite like funding for things like the NHS and schools, but believe in the in the death penalty, uh, but, are, but are sort of quite socially conservative and who don't feel that any of the major parties have really spoken to to them. And one of the things that happened in 2019 was a sort of swing of those voters from, from Labour to the sunlit uplands of Brexit. Lee Anderson is very much part of that. He's got an interesting background. Father was a minor. Uh, he himself is a single father and, and says he's raised sort of children on, on very little money, which is why he thinks he can make comments about nurses and, and food bank use. Um, now, you said that the, we are all the metropolitan liberal elites and have gone, oh my goodness, why have they done this? Uh, whereas actually if you are you know, very wise and don't have the prejudices that, that we all have here, then actually this is a genius move on behalf of Rishi Sunak because he speaks to part of the electorate that uh, he's, he's trying to reach out to. I am not so sure. And I think branding whole sections of the north of England really socially conservative, pro, pro-Brexit, pro-death uh, penalty and, and pro-social conservatism... That's a little bit reductive. Yes, too. it is. I mean, Just yeah, I, I, I don't actually think that myself. I think it's kind of the idea that all these dumb proles in the north, all they want is a fellow who's who is basically Finchy from the office, who's going to go yeah. and be horrible and articulate the most basic prejudices going. That's what they want up there, isn't it? It's in a, their, it's a high the, risk move, isn't yeah. it? It's well, I mean, like nobody I know, you know, back where I come from, would be impressed by this. There's also the fact that if you have a firebrand who's prepared to say the unsayable and tweet what he thinks and speak his mind and you know troll twitter or whatever sometimes they put you in positions where for example what you really want to be talking about is launching family hubs up and down the country and instead you get asked questions like so Rishi Sunak do you think that the conservatives should bring back the death penalty which is not something that he wanted to be talking about Mm. last week but Mm. was kind of forced into because you get maverick MPs setting the agenda. So the Lib Dems immediately released a poster with uh, Lee Anderson's greatest hits on it Nurses using food banks have got something wrong with their own finances. Let's make nuisance tenants live in tents and pick potatoes. People who use food banks can't cook properly, and obviously the the, the, the hit of the lot, um, executing people stops them committing crimes. Technically correct. Um, they think it's going to win over southern voters. The other Dems think that by showing this to people across the south, they're going to be repulsed by Lee Anderson, and they're going to uh, ascribe those beliefs to the Conservative Party. Are they just advertising what he wants advertising? I mean, yes, I think it's quite good for Lee Anderson as a sort of personal brand, uh, but for the the prospect of the Conservative Party more generally, uh, as I said, it's a it's it's a high risk move, uh, and and also, I mean, some of the stuff that he said kind of will backfire on him as as well. A couple of weeks ago, he tweeted out a picture of his staffer, Katie, and said, look how little I pay her. And she's also single. <laughs> um, Lee Anderson has, I think, the seventh highest staff turnover of any MP. So that's just a, 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 a fact to, to keep in mind. I have heard that Katie is, is no longer going to work for him. And even the 30p meals, I mean, he went off and said that at this food bank, they teach people how to cook these meals for for 30p a meal. um, And they don't give you the food unless you sign up for the cooking course. And that's not actually true. One of my colleagues went up to the food bank in Asheville and they're like, no, no, we do help people, but we don't deny them the food if they refuse to take the cooking course. So there's a bit of a a fantasy element of him as well, I think. Alex, is uh, Lee Anderson basically a trolletician? A guy who goes out there and says things so stupid and nasty that interviewers have got nowhere else to go. In part. I mean, in part, this is sort of government by trolling. In part, is fringe management, um, because also there will be a, a sort of rump of those backbenchers that see this as a victory, as them having one of theirs at the sort of top table. But it's also, I think, a, a defensive acknowledgement that Lee's sort of pseudo-butch rubbish. It stimulates a a part of the Tory base that Sunak is now actively trying to appease. It's not a coincidence that it was people like Martin Daubney and Lance Foreman that sort of rushed Mm -hmm. to congratulate him. And Wotton as well. So I think it's a more dangerous development than people realise, or perhaps I'm plagued by an, an abundance of caution because I've sort of seen this before in Greece. Anderson, Gallis, people like that, they remind me precisely of the sort of people Golden Dawn 
put in, in the Greek parliament, not in terms of the politics, which are obviously less extreme, but in terms of their, there's, some, there's a sort of, I don't give a fuck, swagger, a body language, a sort of jockness, mm. an underlying threat of violence, a, let's go outside and fight, that I recognize and, and that to me has links to authoritarianism and sets alarm bells. He basically offered Steve Bray out. Yeah. And said, "We'll sort this out in the box." He did, and, he got physical, and he got physical. With yeah, he and he got physical. Yeah, not this was just days ago. Which, and, and if anybody else did it, that's common assault. Well, yeah. I hear. Um, do you think Lee Anderson's a toxic figure? Are we talking about him too much? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, but I, I think that that's that's the that's the issue for the Conservative Party, right? It's like it's not like he got made Home Secretary or something, which would have been. Insane for all sorts of other reasons. You've already right? got an insane home secretary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's actually someone's in here. Actually, uh, right, um, but uh, <laughs> give it a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, Occupado. Like, yeah, he's sort of like he's the Tory party's like assistant to the regional manager, and we're all talking about him in this way. Like, I can't remember. I have had more conversations about the death penalty in the last few days than I have had in my entire life because of some offhand comment that this guy makes. And I think it's exactly as Rachel said. I'm sure that Rishi Sunak would much rather everyone was talking about the family hubs and everything rather than this guy distracting from what crumbs of message discipline or messaging that they're trying to get out at the moment. So it also I th- makes you feel sorry for Greg Hans, who actually got the job. Yes. <laughs> we were not talking about it. No one knows anything about it. There's four deputies in total. Yeah. He's only one of them. It's just he's the most horrible of them all. And we shouldn't leave aside, uh, right, there are all sorts of things about the guy that, like, for example, I think the photograph of him being all, like, lovely and chummy with a bunch of people who also have, like, links to white supremacist organisations yeah. uh, and stuff. It's a pretty awkward thing that Rishi Sunak uh, would find that guy now in this position. So there's all of that sort of toxicity, but it seems just from like a managerial perspective, the idea that everyone, like Lee Anderson isn't a dead cat or something, you know, it's like in this moment, given that basically everything that Rishi Sunak does, whether good or bad, seems immediately to turn to ash and everything. I'm sure that he would love for the discussion to be about something other than 30p Lee and how crazy some of the things that 30p Lee has said. So basically, we've got our new main character, and it's Poochie. <laughs> Soon, Lee Anderson will have to return to his home planet. <laughs> will. Uh, well, he he probably will be after the next election, because it's worth remembering as well that Ashfield is a swing seat, and he's got a majority of, I think, 5,000, and it's looking very, very likely that we'll, mm. he'll lose it. He was um, office assistant or chief of staff or something to Gloria de Piero, mm. who was obviously the Labour Brexiteer. Um, so he's got an interesting kind of backstory to where he ended up now and I sort of feel that after the next election he might be hosting a show on GB News does that can't seem wait. likely mm. can't wait that to seems see the finale very likely, <laughs> yes. I can't wait to see the finale of the story uh, uh, but if I can say something the reason this has captured attention is because I mean it's not because Lee Anderson is you know the the sum total of the disease in the Tory party at the moment but he's a really obvious symptom of something that happened in 2019 where a lot of experienced and sensible people were purged and a lot of people brought in that wouldn't have passed a really basic suitability check 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And I think it is a sort of continuation of the Brexit disease. That's why it's captured so much attention because there was a period where our body politic was infected by lies. So Lee Anderson is a sort of human manifestation of the sort of toxic stuff that gets rewarded yeah. right now, not just in, in the Conservative Party, but in politics in general. And if you put yourself in the position of a sort of amoral, really ambitious person trying to make it in that business, what I mean, what route would you choose right now? You would choose lies, outrageous things. You would choose all the stuff that makes you noticed. The one thing that, to a certain extent, I find kind of reassuring is that when uh, Lee Anderson got put into this role, um, and I was like, oh, where do I recognize that name from and everything? And uh, when I was reading about him, and they're like, oh, he's the guy who said that he wasn't going to watch the Euros because the England players were taking the knee and that was proof that they were soft and they were going to be knocked out uh, immediately. 
lo and behold, uh, that didn't happen. What I remember most about that is that, yes, he did say these things. And yes, you're right. It is symptomatic of a sort of real rot in the Conservative Party and the sort of thing that seems to have been rewarded in the Conservative Party over the last few years. But what I mainly remember of that was the overwhelming reaction to that and a reaction even within the Conservatives, uh, to a large extent, was derision, right? Mm. And like Lee Anderson prides himself on the saying what we're all thinking sort of thing. People went. Yeah, and then, uh, then he, then he yeah. says it. And, and like, people went, we're not thinking. Yeah, yeah. and like even, people, uh, like, and even people who were like on his side, uh, everything was like, no, no, mm. no, that's not, that's not at all. So I think that, yes, there are all sorts of problems with this and it's upsetting for several reasons. There is also perhaps that sliver of optimism there. Yes, we're not thinking that at all. (laughs) Next up, where is this plot to rejoin the EU and how do we join it? Not a lot of people know this, but this podcast used to be called Romaniacs. Uh, We've held off the topic of rejoining somewhat, uh, but with Michael Gove convening a top-secret gathering of the post-Brexit Illuminati... David Lammy, Norman Lamont, Michael Howard, Peter Mandelson. Is it time we start at least beginning the conversation? Um, Alex, how do you feel about the talk around this, this kind of uh, secret summit? Is there something in the air? Is is it starting to crack, do you think? Oh, there's definitely something in the air. I mean, uh, in in some capacities, I'm a sort of professional news watcher, and I would say that the volume of... Uh, news items and opinion pieces about Brexit in the last two months bears no comparison to what was going on before. And the the critical assessment, even from Brexit-friendly quarters, is a lot more vehement than anything we've seen before. So it's like a taboo has been broken a little bit and now everyone is suddenly talking about how rubbish it is. And the only, you know, the only conversation that seems to be going on is about the quantum of damage and how long it will take us to recover than any semblance of a debate about potential benefits. But as you know, I do think the debate is too anglocentric. I think it is the flip side of what actually begot us Brexit, Mm. this notion that the, the only condition necessary for the UK to rejoin is for us to say so. Mm. <laughs> Click our heels three yes. times and, and say, we want to go back in the year. And then suddenly, you know, it will all be undone. I think that's rubbish. Yeah. So what did you think of this uh, Gove stock uh, in Ditchley Park then? I mean, it's it's more the fact that it happened that seems to have made the waves of what was discussed there. So I talked about the conditions, mm. the real conditions for getting back. I think it's a really positive first step because I think it recognises that one of the conditions for a defrosting of relationship, I'm not, I'm not going to... Call it rejoin. It's going to be a gradual thing, yeah. Um, So I think it's it's the realization that there needs to be bipartisan buy-in. The EU will need to know that the next government is not just going to come in and undo it. They're not going to dance this dance with us. So I think there needs to be a bipartisan will and strong public support for anything like that to happen. And then you move on to the two sort of longer-term conditions, which are a a rebuilding of trust and a very stable public opinion in favour of rejoin, which can only be built over time. So we're talking about a process of building blocks. But I think this is a really positive step, not least of which because it contains the implicit recognition that the government knows it's probably not going to be the next government. I mean, that's what they're acknowledging Mm. by inviting Labour into the tent and saying, what do you think we should do? You know, they're recognising that, you know, they've got a stake in this because they're probably going to be the next administration. I mean, just purely for personal entertainment, I enjoyed the fact that it annoyed all the right people. Farage, Farage <laughs> said the full sellout of Brexit is underway. Don't threaten me with a good time. And David Frost saying there's a plot to unravel the Brexit deal that he did and now says it's rubbish and should be unravelled. Oh. Yeah, so maybe he's in on it. I, I, Seriously, I just fuck that popping. I like the way I, he's... I, I mean, of all the people, he's going to be, incidentally, in the Reform Party. I have zero doubt within six months, and this is his preamble for doing that. He's rolling the pitch for moving to the Brexit party 
probably led by Boris Johnson, incidentally. Mm. If they don't let him back in the Tories, he will just burn everything to the ground. Big call, listeners. There you go. Put it in your file of facts or whatever people have these days. <laughs> uh, Rachel, so what does this say about the, the state of the Conservative Party in that like this is happening and presumably sanctioned from somewhere? Well, firstly, I think it's kind of sad that when something cross-party like this happens, it's such a big news story. I mean, if you if you can imagine an alternative reality where politics actually functions, <laughs> uh, a kind of massive constitutional issue that isn't just doesn't just cut down along along party lines, you would hope that there would be sort of cross-party discussions and consensus. And you could even say that after the vote in 2016, where it was a binary vote, you know, stay or leave, uh, when you had politicians on from all parties or from, from all parties. I don't think there were any Lib Dem Brexiteers. Uh, they're an old breed, Lib Dem Brexiteers. I know one. Um, but anyway, the, from, from Labour and the Conservatives, certainly, after that vote, you might have hoped for this kind of meeting. OK, people have voted for this. It wasn't about party politics. What are we going to do? How are we going to move forward? What kind of Brexit are we going to have? Instead, what happened was this weird, almost six-year purity test where all of the Conservatives kind of auditioned to be more Brexity than the last. We're now at a point where even Boris Johnson, who was the figurehead of the Leave campaign, is by some accounts not Brexity enough, you know, sold Britain out. And we're, we're back to this line that... Um, uh, true Brexit has never been tried, just like sort of true communism. So I'm quite heartened by the fact that these meetings are going on. I will reiterate what I've said before, which is that if you see Brexit as a divorce, we can't hope to get remarried anytime soon. We should be aiming for a friends with benefits kind of relationship with the EU. <laughs> Based on... <laughs> well, like in series one of Happy Valley, that worked out well, didn't it? <laughs> Based on mutual respect and affection and just being grown-ups about it. I, you see, to me, even that's step two. The first step should be a sensible co-parenting relationship of stuff. What, of Gibraltar? Is, of, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's of stuff that You've is got of it mutual this weekend. interest, you Take know, the Irish zero. border. I mean, that should be the building block, the first one, really. Well, I, think, I think the first one is just acknowledging that the leaders of EU governments aren't actually your enemies. Mm. So we've, we've, we've done that first mini-step. Well, come on. I mean, the, the title the, uh, the topic of this meeting was absolutely incendiary. I'm not surprised it made Brexiters lose their minds. It was, how can we make Brexit work better with our neighbours in Europe? I mean, that's fucking oh. war. That is yeah. war. <laughs> blood on the walls. It's quite <laughs> astonishing. I hear every time this topic is raised, the Brexit press just scream. There's no kind of phase one. It's straight to DEFCON. You know, <laughs> secret plots, betrayals, deep state. Do you think that... That hysteria still still gets the traction that it did amongst the people. Know. I think that and maybe I'm wrong in saying this, and I'm just not seeing it as. But but it, it feels like that that level of sort of anger and vitriol and stuff is a bit less than it certainly used to be. You know, like compare what happened in the way that this meeting was reported versus having like the faces of judges on the front page with the massive headline enemies of the people only a few years ago. It does feel like the tone of the uh, <laughs> sort of press coverage is shifting. And Old I... man shouts at cloud. Yes, <laughs> sort of painting by numbers, like someone fed all of Alistair Heath's pieces into chat. <laughs> and asked it to generate some telegraph content. I'm going to do that when we finish the recording and we'll see what we get. But I, I do think that this is because the attitude towards Brexit has changed very drastically over the course of the last seven years, as, as, as we know. And it's the case that at the beginning, when slightly over half of the population were very into this particular thing, and the way that newspapers reflected their readers' prejudices back at them is going to be very different in that world versus a world in which very appreciable numbers of those self-same readers will be feeling a little twinge of regret that they may not be willing to publicly uh, acknowledge or openly acknowledge, but we see that that's developing. And it feels like like a lot of things in contemporary British politics, that Ernest Hemingway quote of how you go bankrupt comes to mind, right, gradually and then suddenly. And it felt like the last few years were a real gradual thing of, 
okay, we're doing this. Oh, it might not be working. It might not be working. And then all of a sudden, there seems to be this increasing deluge of polls saying the level of regret, the possibilities of rejoin um, that are coming along. And I think that, you know, while the Brexit press don't like that fact, it's not like they've not noticed. Yeah. There was a great piece in the FT by Gideon Rackman sort of pointing out that the kind of labour approach, the marginal fixes might not be achievable and they wouldn't sort of compensate for us leaving the internal market. Anyway, the idea that you can kind of finesse it might not be there. But he also talked a lot about how to how to get the conversation going mm-hmm. because everybody's talking about it except politicians. Keir Starmer, no case to rejoin the EU, all this kind of stuff. Might we, in a few years' time, look back and say the person who did us the biggest favour of the lot was Michael Gove? <laughs> Maybe, uh, but I, like I, I don't really know what the expectation is for Keir Starmer to talk about. I think that I've talked about this mm. before. Unless a very, very, very weird set of circumstances occur between now and the general election, I'm going to vote for the Labour Party. I'm not the guy who needs to get put in the bag uh, or what have you and throwing out uh, also we're going to rejoin the EU uh, before the general election as though it's entirely in our gift Uh, seems like it would be an odd thing to do Um, and I also think that there is a sort of problem with this idea of what what rejoin means like a major problem with Brexit was that the word leave meant as many different things as there were people who voted for leave and then there was no real plan for what that actually would be worked up in the aftermath. Similarly, I feel like a term like rejoin, at the, what does it mean? Does it mean a belief that one can push a button marked makes everything better? You really think that there's going to be the same terms that we were in previously? Do you think that the rebate will work in exactly the same way? Do you think that an opt-out of the currency union is going to work in the same way? And I'm sure that there are quite a lot of people, even those who voted remain the first time, myself included, who would feel very differently about the whole prospect if there was also a, and fairly soon down the line, we're going to join a currency union, Mm. then compared to how we felt a few years ago. So I think that there's an extent to which we can get sort of overexcited. I know the previous name of this uh, fine institution and podcast, uh, there's an extent to which we can get overexcited and not realize that just as leave meant so many things to so many people, now we might find that. Yeah. Rejoin also. Yeah. Well, I mean, we did. We have have had a few listeners over the uh, the past couple of years going, you guys have kind of shut up about it now. You don't care about the EU anymore. You don't. Why are you not talking about rejoin? Why are you not putting your shoulder to the wheel? And I think the kind of the general thought here was like, it's not the time and why and you can't achieve it. You know, like at the moment, you can't get there from here. But I suppose the question is now, could you get there from here, from where we are now at the start of 2023? How would you at least restart the conversation? I Go. wouldn't. Hmm? You wouldn't do it at all? Uh, not at the moment. And I wouldn't because the, what's that? Oh, I think it's a, it's a Darren Brown phrase. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attribute it to Darren Brown. It may have been from somebody else, which is it is much easier to con someone than to convince them that they have been conned. And I am not saying that people who voted for Brexit were conned. I'm sure they had very legitimate reasons for doing so. But getting somebody to change their mind, especially about something that was so divisive and emotive, it's almost like the more you try, the the more they sort of dig in their heels, even if they can start to see. And what we are seeing now is people starting to get the sense that Brexit isn't working out exactly as they wanted to in a um, I think 629 of 632 constituencies, there are now a majority of people who go, yeah, it was probably a mistake. If you, I mean, that's fragile, right? If you go too far in with, and you were lied to, and you believed all this bullshit, which Mm. I can say on this podcast, which is great, um, and you were stupid forever trusting Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson, you know, and now the the grown-ups are in and we're going to fix it all for you. That's a really patronising message that I think would do more harm than good. And what you, I mean, trade deals are boring. Right, And if we want to get to a more constructive, closer relationship with the EU, I think we should probably stop talking about it and let politicians like Michael Gove or whoever slowly make those first steps and and not make too much of a fuss about it. Then it won't be on the front page of the Daily Mail and then we might get somewhere. And let the Farages and the Redwoods and the and the Frosty Frosts carry on mm. being bonkers. And just ignore them. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, because there's, there's one thing that's very much in our favour. Uh, you know, polling indicates that about 79% of 18 to 24-year-olds do want to rejoin and they're only going to get older. 
And maybe I think to achieve these sorts of things, like with the, for example, something like mutually uh, acknowledged professional qualifications, like that's that I- that both is and should be a pretty boring thing, right? If it then gets tied to people talking about uh, rejoining or whatever, suddenly that makes it like what I find really interesting when I talk to friends in the civil service is that it's always extraordinarily different when they're working on very necessary but extremely unsexy Mm. things Mm. versus when they're working on the sexy thing. And you absolutely don't want to be working on the sexy thing because that's when politics comes into it all (laughs) and prevents the correct decisions being made because, well, oh, the other guy said that I should do that, so I can't be seen to be doing that and everything. Whereas in a lot of the unsexy stuff, like there is some good decision making occurring uh, in things, uh, as uh, odd as that is to say. Um, But it tends not to occur with the headline big sexy thing. Just keep saying sexy on the podcast. I'm really enjoying it. Stop making Brexit sexy. It's not sexy. God, I long for boring. Finally, masters of their own public domain. Disney have managed to keep Mickey Mouse's copyright to themselves ad infinitum. But if enough time passes since the publication of a work of art, and if it isn't renewed, it enters the public domain. This year, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, James Joyce's Ulysses, and A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh are all up for grabs, in the USA at least. One director has wasted no time on their own adaptation, Blood and Honey, which turns the residents of Hundred Acre Wood into axe-wielding monsters in an 18-rated Splatterfest. Sounds great. Uh, according to librarians in New York, thousands more books could now be up for grabs if they were published before 1964. Um, now, obviously, you know, the thought of uh, Pooh Bear wading through entrails with an axe in his hand is absolutely fascinating. But do we really need, like, horror adaptations of kids' books? It's, like, it's a bit kind of self-consciously edgy, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think we need... I think anything that surprises you, yeah. it, you know, as long as it's well done, it can be a good thing. I read a fantastic comic a couple of years ago which took the Flintstones and treated them seriously as like a family comedy. <laughs> it was like it was like modern family, except it's prehistoric modern family. Yeah. And, you know, the characters were the same characters, Fred and Wilma and all the rest of them. They were actually so, they were so well drawn. It was almost like the storyboard for a really good TV sitcom, <laughs> except, you know, the Hoover's a pterodactyl. Um, <laughs> television is a stone box with the man inside it reading you the news. It's the Jetsons that but scarred yes, me the, as a child. Exactly, the Jetsons. I fully expected flying robot servants yeah. and hovercraft. Well, the Jetsons and the Flintstones were the same, weren't they? They were just basically, yeah. is what a family would be like in a different you know, different environment. I mean, when people see these things like, uh, you know, a horror version of uh, Winnie the Pooh, whatever, and get wound up, are they... Are they taking sort of respect for the original authorial intent too far then? No, IP is uh, the right to make money. Yeah, but something. it's a bit of both, isn't it? It's no, the right for a particular not. person to make money. No, it's not. I'm sorry. As a former lawyer, okay, I will have right. to protest. <laughs> argue, argue. IP yeah. is very, very specifically about the rights to make money out of something. It's about nothing else. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so, so, yeah, as as long as you don't have the exclusivity of that patent effectively to make money out of a thing then it's you know it's available to all when it comes to winning the Pooh, i mean i absolutely hate horror films and i will not be watching blood and honey but disney has had a stranglehold over that for far too long to the extent that even schools putting on productions of Winnie the Pooh can get into sort of legal trouble no. and it's yeah yeah the Disney Disney absolutely heartless with this um, and so the, the fact that that's coming back <laughs> and, and people can make their own adaptations not necessarily horror ones but maybe just a version of Winnie the Pooh where they don't all have really crass American accents and there's not a random gopher I mean I'd be <laughs> I'd this be it's stunning to me because it feels like it feels like the sort of like plucky underdog school having a lawyer from Globo Corp tell them that they can't put on a play and then they have to raise money to save the community. It sounds like a Disney film and yet it's Disney who are doing it. As we've just established mere moments ago, I'm not a lawyer, but I I do know why this happens because when you're in uh, that end of IP... You, you absolutely can't let it go because if you let it go for a cute little school somewhere, you have eroded your claim on the, on the IP. So this is why you see like a, a little old lady who, who, you know, knits Daleks and gives them away at schools or whatever. She gets a letter from the BBC and the reason is because otherwise the BBC's claim on the Dalek is weakened. This this goes to show that my, there's there's some substance to my theory that more of the law should be considered with the idea of 
But like, come on. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. that should be... <laughs> that should it be a... It kind of is, yeah, I that, hear. That should be involved in IP law. And it's know, like, yeah, but come, come on. The, the that, entire that. premise of litigation is, come on. <laughs> yeah. You know, otherwise, there would be such a clear... Um, you know, legal position that no one would go to court. So. Also, I hear, as a comedian, a field where we know it's been established there are only seven jokes. Yeah. You will have to say that, don't you? <laughs> because if it's not a come on, then you're entire then literally everybody in your field of business is going to be out of a job and yeah. in debtor's prison. I mean, what I wanted to ask is, is um, you know, in the age we mentioned chat GPT and mid-journey when AI will scrape the internet, haul in images, haul in words, reconstruct something completely new with no respect for, no kind of thought about IP ownership. And in fact, lots of artists are up in arms about this stuff being used without permission. Talking about things going into public domain is a bit antiquated, isn't it? But even before you had the AI version, you had fan fiction, which is a thing that we all like to pretend didn't happen on the internet. It very much <laughs> did. That's how we ended up with Fifty Shades of Grey. So I, I, I am... I have lots of concerns about uh, ChatGPT uh, and, and making sure creators get paid for the stuff that it gets trained on and all of the ethical implications. Uh, but I, I, I don't think it's kind of coming for industry-wide, destroying the concept of entertainment oh. quite, quite yet. I do think, though, we seem to be creating AI that's really good or being trained to take all the fun jobs away, uh, like, like, like writing or comedy or music or poetry or whatever, and, and leaving us with the, with the shit ones. Like, when is, when is AI going to work out how I don't have to clean my flat. That would be really nice. That's when you get it. That's when you find yourself starring in a horror film about the robot cleaner that goes berserk <laughs> and decides to clean everything. everything. Uh, you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. It's like, and joining us this week, uh, it was Rachel, but she's now just some paper clips. So that, yeah. uh, I made her clean and tidy. <laughs> so, I mean, given that these things are coming out of uh, public domain anyway, what would we like to have a go at to take on pre-existing stuff and remake it? Oh, God. I hate remakes, though. So I'm really the wrong person to ask about this because I... Like, if the the original material is not good enough, I struggle to see the reason for a remake. Classic example, Flatliners. Why take a mediocre film and make an even more mediocre version of it 20 years on? And if the original material is great, like, psycho why the fuck would you remake it but alex you're an opera guy it's all interpretations it's all remakes it's all rerubs and redos well, that, but that's absolutely true because it's that's a live performance mm-hmm. art, isn't it so that that makes every performance different but i mean do you have something that you saw a remake of and you thought oh that's just infinitely better well was, this is this i was is waiting thing. for this to yes happen. i think your anti your anti remake but without remakes we would have never seen toby Maguire, andrew garfield and tom holland all be spider-man together yes. at the same time and that was and what a great time that was for i from the looks that you guys are giving me specifically me and andrew yeah. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating I hear it was the greatest moment of my life (laughs) I sat in the cinema weeping I love all of you you're my guy but but that's a reboot I have no idea what you're talking about none whatsoever like like the reboot of um, Star Trek for instance I thought was really really good like a really technically the reboot the movie the movies yeah yeah okay I mean I I would say Battlestar Galactica which is vastly superior the original one's kind of okay bit of a knockabout Star Wars ripoff and they remake it and it's this mythical thing Westworld as well which you know the original Westworld is an absolutely Mm. fine knockabout movie about you know a black hat gunman the television adaptation goes in again into what is it to be a human being yeah, and it's. I mean, it went crap after four series, but that happens. You know, and I think, for example, we may have a situation where look at things in the contemporary world. People had all sorts of love for early seasons of, and then hate for later seasons of Game of Thrones. Who's to say that fifty years from now there won't be a remake of that? And maybe that will go using later source material. Maybe. Uh, in and the they, won't, they won't ruin the final season. Yeah. Rachel, what would you like to uh, see redone if freed from the, the kind of constraints of uh, IP? So I hate horror, as we've established, and I don't like this idea that we just take everything that wasn't horror and make it horror. <laughs> what I would like is to see 
The Ring or The Shining or something like that reimagined as a fun kids' adventure. Like watching a film and or staying in a hotel. (laughs) Jack Torrance goes a little bit wacky. I could absolutely see The Shining as a heartwarming comedy. It was like the situation is dad and the kids, dad, the kid and the wife are stuck in a hotel. What's going to happen? Who's going to come and visit? Oh, no. Dad's so bored. He's decided to do a project. I would love to see The Shining. It'd be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But then you add the bit like the kids got telekinetic powers or psychic powers. Or like Matilda, which is a nice family-friendly comedy. There you go. Actually, I think Rachel is onto something. So going back to your original question, I think I'd like to have a go at some Stephen King stuff because I think he's been badly, badly served. Well, I did notice that The Colour Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft is out of copyright this year. And I'd like to give that to Denis Villeneuve. I think he would do an incredible job with it because it is, you know, H.P. Lovecraft never successfully filmed. Somebody, uh, Richard Stanley did make a movie of The Colour Out of Space in 2019 with Nicolas Cage. And it's okay, but you can see the the, the lack of money. I'd like Mm. to see it done, you know, with the stupendous budgets and the stupendous... Bonfire of the Vanities, such a stunning book. Terrible film. film so bad. It's one of the three or four films that I've actually walked out of. That's how bad it was. And when I when I pay my 15 or 20 quid, I want to get my, my money's worth. I don't walk out of films easily. Well, I think you'll need to re- come back in about 2070 when it comes out of copyright and you can give it a go. Coming to the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes, the films, books, video games, or amateur weather ballooning that our panellists are using to take their minds off politics. Rachel Cunliffe. Punk rock. In general? Uh, in general, but I went to a gig last week, oh, I. which uh, I don't do very often, uh, and certainly not since COVID, just getting back into the swing of it is, is hard. And it was four hours of not thinking about anything except the music and the other people there and how we definitely weren't socially distancing. Um, but just the, the escapism of of that, of being feeling the music and feeling other people enjoying the music and feeling the sort of rage and release that goes with it. And I have felt notably calmer since then. Who was on? Frank Turner. Oh, right. Who, okay. I, uh, who I also interviewed, who you can possibly read about on the, on the New Statesman website shortly. That was, a, that was a lovely way to help me promote my own work. Thank you. There you go. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think uh, the power of live music is something that I really missed during COVID. And I'm very pleased that it's coming back. I hear. How about you? So this week I read uh, by the science fiction writer Ted Chang, uh, wrote a wonderful piece in The New Yorker called ChatGPT is a blurry JPEG of the web. And it's just sort of like he's really like cool sort of philosophical writer of science fiction. Uh, And this was just like about this is not fiction. This is just about ChatGPT and his take from the way that he thinks about science and philosophy and AI. And I read this and immediately sent it to so many people. It's a really, really wonderful uh, essay. And it's also inspired to me to uh, get reading his short story collections, which are called Stories of Your Life and Others, which was uh, there was a story in there that became the film Arrival and another one called Exhalation. And so I'm looking forward this week to reading both of them. I love Ted Chang and that book. That compilation of short stories is fantastic. We'll put the link to that essay uh, in the show notes so people can read it. Alex, how about you? So um, I've gone back to Picard because there's a third season coming out soon and I only watched one episode for review purposes at the time and I hadn't watched any more of it and and so I've gone back to that and really enjoying it. That's on Amazon Prime. And I'm also at the same time watching another thing that I completely missed, seeing as we were talking about um, Stephen King. There's a series called Castle Rock. Have you come across it at all? No. So Castle Rock is this weird little town in Maine where um, uh, uh, Stephen King has set an enormous amount of his stories, things like um, Christine and the Shawshank Redemption is in a prison just outside Castle Rock and and needful things. And loads of his stories are set around oh. this fictional town of Castle Rock. And the series is called Castle Rock and basically brings together a lot of the stuff going on in Stephen King um, novels and a lot of the characters 
coexisting in this community. And it's really, really rather, um, I mean, it's for Stephen King fans, but for Stephen King fans, it's kind of heaven. So basically, it's the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but for Stephen King. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Oh, wow. Fantastic. I had no idea. That sounds, that sounds amazing. Doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of things that uh, you should have watched it, you haven't. I've finally got around to Our Friends in the North from 1996. I think we may have mentioned on the podcast before that I yes. hadn't seen it. And I, I realized I hadn't seen it because I was actually out of the country when it was on. My God, it's good. It's so brilliant. You know, apart from the incredible cast, Christopher Eccleston, Gina McKee, you know, Daniel Craig, uh, Mark Strong. Just the thing that gets me more than anything is that this would never be made now. You would not get a politically engaged show like this made now. The BBC is just too frightened. You would never see a show that digs into corruption, that digs into you know, the municipal roots of the Labour Party. It's just, I mean, it, the pace is a little slow for today's tastes. I actually like that because I'm sick of being battered with jump cuts and exciting music. Mm-hmm. It's just so wonderful. Um, it's all on the iPlayer right now. I'm chewing through two episodes a night. It's fantastic. Good for you. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Ahir Shah, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you. And thank you for joining us, Rachel Cunliffe. Thank you for having me. We'll be back on Friday. Or if you'd like the podcast a little bit earlier, you can back us on Patreon and get it on Thursday. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get episodes early, you'll get bonus content like our Thursday Extra Bits and our Monday minicast, Oh God, What Else? As well as exclusive bonuses like merchandise and early access to live show tickets like the one that's happening this week, Wednesday. So here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, along with a thank you to some of those lovely Patreon backers. Hello and happy Valentine's Day to Elizabeth Thompson, Elsa Kramer, Anthony Robinson, Jane Marsh, and Jonathan Sace. Many thanks from me to Danny Amy, James Ogden, Andrew Hart, RM, and Hiro Shimizu. And for me, all the best, many thanks, and cards and chocolates are in the post to Joe Moken, David Fennick, Mike Hyde, Alex, and Helen Megginson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the end of the week for another episode. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andre and Arheer Shah. The producers are Alex Reese and Jack Gerbertson. Audio productions by me, Robin Lieber. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. 